you got some nice eyes. So, you know what's interesting about the church is we get to celebrate Easter every week, right? The reality is that every Sunday on the Lord's Day, we celebrate the risen Christ. And today in particular, um, we're going to take a look at one of my favorite, maybe my favorite narrative from the Gospels that lays out the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I just pray this morning that God, through his word, as he does, only he can do, would speak to our hearts. Amen? Is that not your prayer this morning? That he would change us, that he would speak to us? How amazing that we have God's word. The God of the universe has spoken to us. And we have that in the scriptures this morning. So happy Easter. I hope that you all have some wonderful uh, meals planned later on. I just wanted to give Doug and those guys the ability to check the box that I talked about food this morning. They have running bets every time I speak that I'm going to mention food. Um, so it's hard not to think about that on Easter. Amen. Some ham, some potatoes. Turn with me to John chapter 20 this morning. And we're going to read verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, who uh, most believe is John himself, writing but not naming himself. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Maybe John didn't name himself out of humility because he beat him in the foot race. And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went, went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there. The face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, 
and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. What an incredible narrative that for us speaks to so many implications of what the resurrection means for us today. Amen? You know, the resurrection is one of those things that, you know, as a lawyer and former prosecutor, my mind goes to evidence, right? Like, I, 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 I go to that place when I think of the resurrection. There's been a lot of great books written about this. N.T. Wright wrote a great book. There's, there's a lot of books related to the evidences of the resurrection. And it's one of those things that we understand as the church that the resurrection is really the heart of our faith. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's not who he said he is. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, he is who he said he is. Amen? And, and so we recognize that the resurrection is one of those things that is, it is the thing that is at the, at the heart of what we believe and who Jesus is. And the evidences for the resurrection are truly overwhelming. If I ever had a case with this much evidence, I would have been a happy prosecutor. And I'm going to talk about two pieces of evidence that rise out of this particular passage this morning. But... This is one of those things, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer this morning, we celebrate it. If you are a skeptic this morning, or you are a seeker this morning, or you're looking into it, look into it. Look into the reality and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's overwhelming. The mountain of evidence is, is frankly remarkable. And what the resurrection offers us this morning is even more remarkable. Amen? What the resurrection offers us this morning is amazing. New bodies, new heavens, new earth, eternity with loved ones, eternity worshiping God forever. Amen? That's what we see. That's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate this morning. You know, the, the, the resurrection is really, it's, it's a rational thing. It's a merciful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a personal thing. And, and I think it's important for us as Christians, as believers, to walk through those evidences in our mind, to rationally um, mix in with the, the existential reality that we just know that we know. It's like my old pastor used to say, you know it in your knower. It's just as God moves in your heart, you know. But there's also a rationality to it as we explore and as we seek and as we look. As we read, as we explore the evidences, there's, there's rationality to that. We see that in this passage this morning. As, as John and Peter run down, right? And John beats him, and he gets to the tomb first. And we read that John gets to the tomb, and he looks, and he sees the linens, and he sees uh, the headcloth folded, but he doesn't go in. 
And then Peter, Peter goes in straight into the tomb as quintessential Peter, right? Like, he's not going to wait around. He busts right into the tomb. He wants to see what's going on. And he looks around, and you see this word that Peter saw. And really, that word saw is different than normal, just see. We see it's really our word for theorizes. And what we see is Peter walks into the tomb, and really what, what the language depicts as it's written in the book of John is that Peter is seeing and contemplating. He's theorizing. He's, he's looking and, and exploring and learning. We see this, this idea that Peter is, is kind of looking down and observing intently for an explanation. Where's Jesus? Where's my Lord? Here's, here's Mary who's panicked and said they've taken him. What we know historically is grave robbing was not uncommon in that day. So you see Peter seeing. He goes into the tomb and he looks. And he's rationally, intently searching for an explanation. If it was grave robbers, why are the linens still there? Peter looks around. Why wouldn't they have taken the expensive linens and spices? They're still in the tomb. Peter's seeing, contemplating. If other disciples had taken his body, why would they have dishonored him and taken him naked? Left the linens. What is going on? We see John come in and sees, looks around, sees the linens, sees the headcloth folded. And what does the scripture say? contemplates he rationally looks around and he believes they were thinking they were looking for evidence you know one of the evidences of the resurrection that's i find remarkable in the scriptures that rises out of this particular passage is mary herself right here we have mary the first one to the tomb we see in all four gospels that is the women and john focuses in on Mary alone in his narrative, but all the women uh, in, in the four Gospels, there's women, Mary, and another woman who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. Mary is the first one to arrive, and, and she is the one to see Jesus and to proclaim to the disciples that she has seen the Lord, that Jesus is risen. How remarkable is that? I think it's one of the most, one of the many proofs and evidences of the truth of the resurrection. There was a Greek scholar in the second century named Celis. I'm sorry, I said his name wrong. Celsus. And he was a second century Greek philosopher who hated Christianity and wrote articles disputing Christianity. And one of his main attacks on Christianity that he wrote, I'm going to read this for you. You ready, church? 2021 New York, Central New York Church. This is his main criticism. Brace yourself. Just a messenger, don't throw anything at me. How could anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Where's he coming from? He's coming from the second century, okay? Women had a low status at that time. Could not testify in court as to not be trusted. We're not swearable witnesses in a courtroom. And so the Greek philosopher in the second century's critique on the resurrection is, how could anyone believe what a hysterical woman witnesses or testifies to? 
Well, think about that in 2021. While he lived in a time where women's status was low and all accounts show first witnesses to the resurrection were women, the Achilles heel at the time of Christianity is that the initial witnesses to the resurrection were females. And what do we see today? If you are going to make up a story about the resurrection to pretend that your rabbi was the Messiah, you would never write that the witnesses to the resurrection initially were women. If you were going to pretend your Messiah rose from the dead, the last thing you would do is write out four Gospels explaining that the first people to see Jesus risen from the dead and to proclaim it and to testify to it were women. The only explanation for all four Gospels reflecting the fact that Mary was the first one to see Jesus had risen from the dead, the only plausible explanation for that is, guess what? Mary is the first person to have seen Jesus had risen from the dead. It's remarkable. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 that was written only 20 years after the resurrection that Jesus appeared to hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of followers. When 1 Corinthians 15 was written, they, many of them were still alive. And Paul says, go talk to them. Hundreds of people had seen the risen Christ. Mary needed evidence. Mary needed to rationalize this. She needed to see him. There had been lots of messianic pretenders, had there not? There had been, throughout that time, many people who claimed to be the Messiah and rose up to overthrow Rome and were killed. Many messianic pretenders. And they would rise up and they would be killed. But something happened when Jesus rose from the dead. Because what we recognize is that at that time, at that moment, hundreds of people who actually witnessed the risen Christ and who are referenced to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, for some reason, all rose up, went out, and changed the face of the planet. A couple years ago, I was at a, a gathering with a bunch of colleagues from the DA's office and folks that I had worked with, and we were at a particular party and hanging out and talking. One of my close friends for the last 10, 12 years, um, him and his wife were there, and his wife is a social studies teacher, and she's brilliant. She's actually a very, very smart person, and she came up to me, and we just kind of were talking and hanging out, just the two of us, and she looked at me, and she said, listen, I'm teaching this particular time period in history, and I wanted to talk to you about this. I need to give a non-supernatural explanation for why Jesus' followers over the next couple of centuries completely transformed the face of the planet, um, and so many other messianic figures in that time period rose up and failed, rose up and failed, rose up and failed. What was different about Jesus and his claims to be the Messiah from everybody else? I was like, whoa. I said, guess what? There is no non-supernatural explanation for that. There isn't. Liars make bad martyrs. So a bunch of liars that 
rose up and literally transformed the planet, transformed this world and, and spread out throughout the world, throughout the globe, that went, that were tortured, that were persecuted, and that were killed, would only do that because they saw the risen Christ. Amen? What would make a person stand up in the face of persecution and certain death? What would make someone... Uh, give the rest of their lives and completely transform the, the way that they're living and what they're doing and travel the world and travel all over where we see in the book of Acts the church begin to spread in the first century. Uh, th- these people didn't, you know, do, that's what's so ridiculous about the prosperity gospel, right? These guys followed Jesus, gave their lives to Christ, and they died bad, right? Like they didn't like all of a sudden get rich and have really luxurious wonderful lives they were beaten they were tortured they were persecuted they were asked to recant to save their own lives and they stood time and time and time again as you read about the martyrs from that time period and going on and and they took upon themselves torture and death and they went and died boiled in oil crucified upside down beheaded Why? Because they saw the risen Christ. Because they were were witnesses to the remarkable miracle of Jesus rising from the dead. Amen? Changed the world. There is no non-supernatural explanation for that. The evidence is overwhelming. And there's a lot more evidence than this. And I would suggest... Find it. Go look. Explore the resurrection. There's been many men who have set out to disprove the reality of the resurrection and by the end of their research and study have come to Christ and come to faith. The evidence is overwhelming. We see here that the resurrection is not just rational, it's merciful. I love the mercy in this particular narrative with Mary. I love how Jesus speaks to her. Here we see Mary weeping. And what we see about Mary is that even in this moment, Mary's understanding of who Jesus was was too small. Right? Mary's at the tomb. Uh, Peter and John leave and they go back. And Mary stays and she continues to weep. Because in her mind, still, where is Jesus? She's looking for Jesus. To the angels in the tomb, where's Jesus? Where have you laid him? To who she believes to be the gardener. If you've put him somewhere, tell me where he is and I'll come and get him. And so here we see Mary's view of Jesus is still too small. She doesn't recognize Jesus standing right behind her. Because she's looking for a dead Jesus. She's looking for the wrong Jesus. She's looking for a Jesus who's still dead. And I don't know if Mary's eyes were filled with tears or she didn't look clearly at him or there's other passages where Jesus walks with the men on the, on the road and there's scales on their eyes as to not be able to recognize him. And I'm not sure exactly why in this moment until, and in that narrative until the scales fall from their eyes and they see that it's Jesus. I don't know if in this moment uh, why Mary doesn't recognize him, but, but she doesn't. She's looking for a dead Jesus, and she perceives that this person standing here must be the gardener because 
in her evaluation of the circumstances around her and what's going on, that makes the most sense. This must be the gardener standing here. And she looks to him and says, where is he? Where have you laid him? If you've taken him, let me know. Jesus had to reveal himself to Mary. Is that not true about us? I love the narrative of this passage because Jesus has to reveal himself to her because she doesn't see him. She doesn't recognize him because she's looking for the wrong Jesus. Her view is too small. And Jesus, again, comes into her life and reveals himself to her. How does he do it? There's no flash about it, right? He's not like, it's me! (laughs) He doesn't He doesn't scream about himself. He gently looks at her and says, Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? His gentle mercy, even in this moment. She never would have found him had he not revealed himself to her. She was looking for a dead Jesus. Jesus had to break through to her. Our hearts, our minds, our culture, our upbringing, all the things that make up the circumstances of who we are, it's too small to see us. Only Jesus can break through with his saving grace and reveal himself to us. Amen? What a merciful, gracious God that we have. He chooses Mary Magdalene. He chooses you and me. He's revealed himself to us. He chooses Mary Magdalene as the first messenger to the world of his resurrection. Doesn't this tell us something about our amazing Savior? Do you remember who this woman was? Do you remember who Mary Magdalene was? Look back at Luke chapter 8. Mary was a demon-possessed woman with seven demons. What does that mean about Mary? Mary was an outcast. Mary was a, a, a demoniac. She was a crazy person. She was probably wandering around outcast, not clean, talking to herself. I think we can glean from the scriptures that the lifestyle of her life as a demon-possessed woman with seven demons was filled with abuse and sexual assault and, and being used and abused as a woman who was outcast in that culture and who was a demoniac and had seven demons in her. And Jesus chooses her. Here is this crazy person, and Jesus chooses her. Think about her for a moment. Jesus casts out the seven demons, and she's redeemed. Think about Mary as she contemplates her own identity. 
I love this because it doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your prestige. It doesn't matter your financial level. It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, how much you think you've done or how much you think you have. When Jesus comes and breaks through to save and to speak and to reveal himself to you, that's out of his grace and his mercy. And I love that he does it to Mary. Amen? Because that means he can do it for me. He can do it for you. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, Jesus reveals himself to her. He doesn't save by your works, but his works. He doesn't save people who think they're strong. He saves people who knows that they're weak. He doesn't just save by grace, but he gives himself to us. He gives himself to us. I love what he says to Mary. She's crying. And she says to who she thinks is the gardener, if you know where you've laid him, please tell me, because I'll come and get him. Don't you love what he does? He looks at her. And he says, Mary. How remarkable is that? Here's this woman who, before meeting Christ, probably no one called her by name. No one called her by Mary. She was a demoniac. She was an outcast. She was struggling. Jesus came to her, and he was her identity. He came, and he transformed her life. He cast out the demons. He took her from obscurity. And here's this demoniac woman who's an outcast in her society and her culture who people stay away from and don't want to be near and don't want to touch because she's unclean. And Jesus comes and casts demons out of her and makes her clean. And not only that, he calls her to follow him as one of the first followers of Christ in his ministry. And she's completely transformed. And now Mary who followed Jesus, whose life was transformed, who's living a life she never thought or imagined possible, who's been healed and saved. Her Savior dies. He's crucified. And she's devastated. And she's weeping. And she comes to the grave because she wants to honor Him. The one who saved her and transformed her and cast the demons out of her and turned her complete life around. And she goes to the grave to honor him and to anoint his body with oil and to continue to care for him because of her love for him. And he's gone. The worst week she's ever had. Her Savior has now been crucified and now stolen. And his body is gone and it's been defiled. And she's devastated. And she's weeping and she's wondering what's going on. Jesus looks at her and says, Mary. She immediately knows who he is. She turns and says, Teacher, Rabbi. And she falls and she clings to him. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of the resurrected Christ. He says her name. You know, one of the things about our culture is we're, 
We're in so many ways obsessed with identity, are we not? Who am I? Who are we? What is my identity? You know, kind of like the, the Disney catechism is be who you want to be. Follow your heart, right? Like, just it's what we are raising our kids in. Just, just be whatever you want to be. Be your best. Follow your heart. And we read the scriptures, your heart is deceptive and wicked. <laughs> who could know it? And we're like, no, don't follow your heart. You need to follow Jesus. <clears throat> who are we? What is our identity? You know, we know a lot about people. And there's a difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody, isn't there? Like in this world of celebrity, we know a lot about people. You follow their Instagram, you follow them on Facebook or whatever is people are looking at Twitter. And, and you know like what they ate because they took a picture of it. You know who they're dating, you know where they were today, you know what they're doing, and, and we follow these celebrities, and it's very interesting because in some ways, I think people think that they know them, right? You think you know someone because you know about them, but you don't, you don't know them. You don't know them. And there's a difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. Mary knew Jesus. He's the one who transformed her life. And when Jesus says her name, she knows his voice. Amen? When Jesus says Mary, she knows that is her Lord and Savior. That is Jesus who is saying, Mary, this is who you are. And as I say your name, you're understanding who I am. See, Mary's identity was in her Savior. Mary knew Jesus. She didn't just know about Him. So when Jesus said her name, she heard His voice. We see in John that the sheep know the shepherd's voice. When He calls them, they recognize it. And they hear His voice. And they know it. And what Jesus offers us in the resurrection isn't just the ability to know about Him. Because He is not some dead leader of an ethical religion that you get to know about it because you follow the rules. That is not who Jesus is. He's not a dead leader of some ethical religion that you get to know about if you follow the rules. Jesus is the risen Christ, and you and I get to know Him. Amen? We get to know Him. And when He says our name, it's who we are. Because He said it. And the more we know about Him, the, the, the more we know about who we are. Because our identity is in Him, and who He is, and who He says we are. Amen? Jesus says, Mary. Really, the only way to get a secure identity is if someone you adore adores you in return. If someone you respect respects you in return. Someone you love loves you in return. And Jesus says, I am the greatest person in the universe. And in the resurrection, in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that he loves you personally, expensively, and eternally. He's the living Savior who we get to know. Amen? Because he's alive. Because he's risen from the dead. Because he's defeated death and the grave is empty. He defeated death. 
The significance of the resurrection is that he won. The wrath of God for sin poured out upon Jesus on the cross was not just about the, the nails. It wasn't just about the wood. It wasn't just about the beating. It wasn't just about the scourging. Many people had been crucified before and after Jesus. The excruciating pain of the crucifixion was that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, literally becomes the most despicable sight in the history of the world. As he takes upon himself all the wrath of God for sin from Adam to the end of the world. He absorbed the wrath of God for your sin and mine. Amen? I know that's not popular to talk about in America in 2021. Wrath. What about wrath? But His love and His wrath are intertwined. Anyone who has kids understands this. Right? (laughs) That love and wrath let me say it this way. It would not be loving if I let my autonomous three-year-old child run the house, would it? Like, if, if I was like, Gracie, what should we do with our money? Right? This is not loving. That would be evil. Right? Gracie, don't worry about the chainsaw. Go ahead. Give it a shot. Like, you know, Gracie, what do you think we should do to eat today? No, there is a reality in my 45-ness, 45 years old to her threeness, that I'm loving in my discipline and in my speaking into the realities of her life that will protect her and guide her. And, and, and here's, here's, here's the reality of God, that in His eternal, awesome sovereignty, God speaks into the world for what is best in human flourishing. As his children, as we run around messing it up and sinning against each other and hurting each other and damaging and living in our sinfulness, God comes in and and in the resurrection, in the death and resurrection, we see that God makes everything right again. Amen? God is going to make, he has, is it already and not yet when he returns, set everything back in order, make everything right. He has to pay the price for sin. If he wasn't a just God, he wouldn't be a good God. Does everybody hear that this morning? The reality is sin needs to be punished. It creates a death. It's devastating. Every single person breathing oxygen in this room this morning has experienced devastation from sin. There's no question. You have hurt yourself, you've hurt others, and you have been hurt by others. I used to sit in a witness room in the front of the DA's office every day, interviewing people. And as a prosecutor, I I would, for those of you who don't know, I spent 12 years as a prosecutor. I, I was a special victims chief in Onondaga County, so I had eight ADAs, and we handled all child abuse, sexual assault, domestic violence cases, child homicides. And I interviewed, I would say, hundreds if not a thousand kids who had been hurt by somebody. And I can't tell you how many times, almost every time, the 
them talking to a beautiful little innocent child through someone else's lack of self-control and sin devastated their world in a way that they didn't understand. I can't tell you how many times I said to parents or thought to myself, listen, it doesn't matter how long we put someone in jail or what we do here, we can't make this right. Sitting with parents whose loved one had been taken from them or murdered or killed. Even sitting with burglary victims who had the sanctity of their home taken away from them, their their, uh, ability to feel safe. Someone invaded their space and took their stuff. Even that, the devastation, the depth, to sit with someone. and, And often, over and over and over again, I thought, only God can make this right. Only God can make all things right. All the, as, as uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible says, all the bad things come undone. Only God can make all the bad things undone, not bad anymore. And we recognize in the gospel that that is exactly what he has done. Someone has to pay. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Someone has to pay. There is a debt I feel. I've been sinned against. Someone has to pay. And I can't even talk about the doctrine of sin without being introspective and thinking about myself. How much debt have I caused in people's lives? How much have I hurt somebody else? How much have I hurt the heart of God in my selfishness and in my sin? And at the end of the day, someone has to make it right. Someone has to pay. And our loving God, who is just because he's good and the justifier, he found a way to execute justice and love at the same time. Jesus took upon himself our punishment for sin. We can't preach that enough, can we? He paid the price. And what we celebrate this morning is that he defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he rose again. Amen? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Jesus has defeated death so that even though we are sinners, who were the only ones who deserved to be paying this debt, and the only one who didn't deserve to be paying it, he paid it on our behalf. We now get to come into the presence of God and worship Him together for for eternity. Why? Because He rose again. Amen? He defeated death. I'm going to close with this. Mary clung to His feet, and He said, Listen, you don't have to hang on to me like this, like you're going to lose me. That's really what we see in this passage. Mary clings to Him, and Jesus says, You don't have to hang on to me like you're going to lose me. You don't have to hold me like I'm going to just go away again. I haven't risen and gone to heaven, but I'm going. And here's what Jesus is saying to us. And here's what Jesus is saying to Mary. You don't have to hold on to me like I'm, like I'm going somewhere. Because here's the reality. You're going to know me in a way like you've never known me before. You're going to have me like you've never had me before. Please get up. Stop clinging to me because I am going to ascend to the Father and I'm sending the Spirit of God into you so that you can be with me all the time in a way that you haven't been before. So that you can know me, not just know about me. Amen? And Jesus proclaims to Mary, listen, 
get up. You don't have to hang on to me like this. Because I am going to heaven and I'm sending the Spirit into your lives so that you have me in a way like you've never had me before. What a benefit of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection because of the Spirit of God lives in you and it lives in me. Amen? The implications of this, I can't get into because we're out of time. (laughs) The implications of this are so far-reaching in our lives. We celebrate it. We worship about it. It's remarkable. Let me just say a couple things quickly. All things will be made new and right. Listen, we know what we've been saved from. We've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from our sin. We've been saved from the wrath to come. We've been saved from slavery to our sin. Listen, because the Spirit of God lives in you and the power of the resurrection, the resurrected Christ lives in you. We don't have to just say, yup, I'm going to do this. Yup, I'm going to do this. We are not a slave to our sin. God empowers us even though we are weak and we stumble and we trip. God continues to move in our lives and grow us and change us as we respond to Him. We're saved from death in the law, right? Because the law of God is really like a measure that shows us how much we need a Savior. It's the plumb line that shows us how crooked we are. And what we have now is we're saved from that in the power of the resurrection. And God is beginning to grow in us and write His law on our hearts so that we desire to serve Him and to love Him and to change. Amen? The implications of the resurrection are far-reaching. And it's not just what we've been saved from in the spiritual realities of that. It's what we've been saved to. You are saved to union with Christ. You get to know Him. You get to love Him. You get to be in relationship with Him as the Spirit of God resides in us. You're you're not saved from uh, just trying harder in life. You're saved to new life in Jesus. Amen? Because of what He's done. You're saved for eternal life now. God has saved you for eternal life, now for eternity. And that eternal life begins now in your life as you walk out your sanctification and worship Jesus. You're not just sitting around waiting for glory. Now. Saved us so that we can actually know God. Saved us for freedom. Saved us into a community where we can know each other. He saved us for mission. That you, like Mary, like Peter, like John, in light of the resurrection, you go out into the lives of your neighbors, into the lives of those around you, wherever God has placed you, and you proclaim the realities of the resurrected Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he would continue to transform lives. Amen? You, like Mary, get to be his messenger. As she was the first to proclaim the risen Christ, you and I now are saved on mission. We are the most entertained generation in the history of the planet and the most bored. The most medicated, the most suicidal, the most depressed, and the most anxious. You're not saved just to sit around and watch Netflix in comfortable suburban homes. What am I supposed to be doing? Jesus has saved you for mission. You want to see identity and value and, and, and joy in your life abound, 
be consumed with the mission of God in your life. And watch Him use you to proclaim the risen Christ and see other lives changed. We get to be a part of what He's doing in the transforming of other people's lives. How amazing is that? Sometimes we look at other people's lives and be envious. But God has reached into yours and saved you for mission. You're comparing yourself to someone else and saying, man, that person's life is wonderful. The only issue you have is a distance issue. You don't know them well enough. If you get closer, you'll see that we're all stumbling around. God has identity, purpose, joy, mission overcoming sin in your life, all available in the resurrection. You've been saved from your sin. You've been saved to union with Christ because of the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for who you are. What an incredible celebration Easter is. As we take today, particularly to reflect on what you have done. You're alive. We get to know you. Not just know about you. I pray this morning that you would draw us to that place where we know you more. We thank you for what the resurrection has made available to us. You're not just some dead religious leader with a bunch of rules. You are the risen Christ. For those of us who are broken and weak, and we can't find you on our own, just like Mary, you have broken through and revealed yourself to us in your mercy. And we worship you for it. We don't worship you just with songs on a Sunday. Help us to worship you with our lives. On mission. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Now we're going to uh, take this opportunity and we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. What an appropriate thing to do on Easter. Really, this the elements here are by way of reminder for us. On the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the church has come together to worship traditionally throughout Christian history because this is the first day, as reflected in the passage we read, that, that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, the church, the Christian church, began to worship in celebration of Easter every Sunday as the Lord's Day. And so we're gathered this morning. We set this Sabbath aside to concern ourselves with, as 1 Corinthians